Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Caged In, the podcast where I am watching every single Nicolas Cage film to find out if he is the greatest actor of all time or if he was best left there out in the wilderness of Hollywood. The way in which I intend to do that is by inviting a guest on each week, getting them to look at the films in his entire filmography. This week, we've got a new Nick Cage film. Currently, in cinemas here in the UK, as well as streaming, both in the UK and the US. And to hit places worldwide in the coming weeks is, of course, Michael Zarnowski's drama Pig, a beautiful poetic tale of a man searching for a thing that he truly, truly loves, his pig. Pig explores grief, loss, male toxic behavior, and the way in which we go about dealing with all of those issues, as well as the important, beautiful nature of food itself. Is it sustenance or is it so much more? To join me on this conversation, thrilled to be joined by Andrew Pope. We get really deep into this film. We spoil it rotten. So if you haven't seen Pig, please be sure to pause the podcast right now. Um, You can head on over to Twitter where I've pretty much detailed every single independent cinema in the UK that is screening it, as well as check out the show notes where I have put a hand, well, I've put a link to Altitude's website, which will tell you how and where you can rent the film be sure to stick around to the very end of this podcast because i was very fortunate to have a lot of people uh put in their thoughts on what they thought of this film so there's a mixture of voice notes and i'll read out a few different short reviews that people have left in thank you to everyone who's done that so i guess all that's left to do is to grab your local truffle dealer head to portland and look for your missing pig as we get raging with cage Today, we are here to talk about one of the best-reviewed films of the year. 
what some idiots are calling the first good Nick Cage performance. But for the initiated, it's just another notch on the bedpost of great performances for Cage. Of course, it is the Michael Sarnowski-directed drama, Pig. To help me get on the hunt for my lost Nick and help me answer the question, is he the greatest actor of all time, is Andrew Pope. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well. How are you doing, sir? Yes, I'm good. I'm good. We kind of had a chat uh, off off mic that I've I've had my second jab today, so like my brain is a bit woozy and out there. But it kind of it, it helped. It helped with a rewatch of this film. I, uh, yeah, I, I'd say. If you, if you pass out midway through, I'll I'll do my best to uh, take the reins. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> I'm oh, I'm in safe hands. Great. Um. So as I like to start off all these podcasts is to find out, are you a Nicolas Cage fan? Absolutely. Massively so. Um, what is it about him that kind of you find yourself drawn to a lot of the time? Um, I think his, his, sheer, his sheer watchability, you can never quite take your eyes off him because you're never entirely sure what he's going to do next. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in an age when a lot of American actors are still to this day, like post 70s, quite into method and motivation and so on. He's one of those guys who's all about working the surfaces. So he's all about gesture and, uh, you know, stance and uh, an impact and so on, rather than the, usually, and we'll come to this, but usually rather than, um, you know, who am I? I'm going to stay in character off off camera and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he's uh, he's he's a rarity in that regard, which makes him very valuable. And like I say, um, he, he's so, he's so unpredictable. Uh, there's literally he could say or do anything within the next few seconds. So <laughs> um, that's that's an exciting thing to be watching as a cinema guy. I've always said that like he he's not afraid to all caps act, like show you <laughs> the the kind of tools that like he is acting and like, I know he's quite open about his influences from like silent era films, whether it's like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or like Kabuki theater. And I kind of like acting. Yeah. So kind of almost like American Kabuki is his like kind of acting (laughs) style. And I love it. Um, So what would have been the first Nick Cage film you would have seen? This is tricky because you need to like go back in time and be like in you know it's almost lost in the mists of time. I the the first one that I can really genuinely remember is Raising Arizona on VHS. Because wow. I'm I'm of an age when it was you you found out about new films to a certain extent by watching the trailers that came before the feature on rented VHS cassettes. Mm-hmm. So you'd get like four, like four movies would have their trailers in front of the feature on, on a VHS. So I'd seen Raising Arizona on the shelf in a little, uh, where the Americans call Mormon Park. Uh, a weird cover, like a baby in aviator sunglasses or something, I can't remember. Um, and... I thought, what is that about? Because that doesn't fit neatly into any of the genres that like little preteen or teen, teenage me really knew about. I wasn't sure what it really was. Uh, but then the, the trailer for it crept up on a 
or, or cropped up in a couple of movies that I watched uh, on the tapes. And it looked pretty funny. So I was just like, right, I'm, I'm going to watch it. So um, I rented it or, you know, got my mum to rent it. <laughs> I think that was the first one. Uh, the first one I saw in cinemas, probably a, <laughs> not, not quite held in the same high esteem as Raising Arizona, but it was probably Honeymoon in Vegas. That's still a perfectly like fine film. <laughs> like it's it's kind of like it's a bit of I don't know. It's what well, it's indecent proposal without the. It's roar. the thinking man's. It's the thinking man's indecent proposal for sure. <laughs> uh, it, the only line I even really remember from it was um, "Never before have so many Elvises been airborne at the same time." <laughs> there's <laughs> there's an amazing like you get glimpses in that film of that off the wall cage performance. Well, I guess it, it, it's post world at heart, but like even in something like that, he's still doing like mad cap, like line deliveries. I think he did like, he's like, what are we doing here? Like just that kind of like every word sounds, Letting like, rip. sounds like it's from a different I, sentence. I'm just remembering in fact that I saw, um, I saw wild at heart as a rental at a friend's 13th birthday party <laughs> when I myself was just coming up to 13. Uh, so I was you know, 12 and 11 months or something. And um, I went to a friend's birthday party and he'd talked his parents or his elder sister into renting, like they just let him rent anything. So he'd rented um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Mm-hmm. So we watched that first. That was good. And uh, and then the second choice was Wild at Heart. And like thir- 12 and 13-year-olds were slowly leaving the room because they were just like, I don't know what this is. I've lost interest. <laughs> By the end of it, there was like two or three people left just like really into David Lynch. Um, but that was, yeah, that was pretty special as well. So that that was all around the same time, I think. Um, I'd, I, I was a big Twin Peaks fan, uh, like the year or two previously I don't know, maybe one year previously so i saw a new david lynch and i was like yeah i'm gonna watch a new david lynch movie and <laughs> then oh the guy, the guy from raising arizona isn't it so um you know job done so that was good as well that feels like a real like bat- all three of those sound like a a nice range of what cage can do, <laughs> do you know what I mean? a like, smorgasbord yeah. a smorgasbord of cagesons yeah so when you saw like raising arizona to go back to that one were yeah. you kind of captivated by him especially were you kind of like i want to see more of this guy uh to an extent i mean raising arizona is such a madcap madcap coen brothers film anyway it's more that the the characters dissolve into the general tapestry of Coen Brothers' madness in that film. Yeah. Um, I think more so, if anything, with uh, with Wild at Heart. Yeah. I, th- I think in that movie in particular, like you're properly, you're very aware of Cage specifically. Yeah. Like maybe more so than in Raising Arizona, where it's the general, you know, the general ensemble and the directorial choices and so on that, that you. you you're fascinated by that world, that vision. Whereas in in Wild at Heart, oddly enough, because you think David Lynch would have the the powerful vision that might distract you, but in Wild at Heart, I would say 
when Cage is on screen, you're properly looking at Cage yeah. and he's putting on his jacket and he's striking his poses. You're, you're very aware of him as a performer in that film. Um, so I think if, if anything, in terms of a film that would make me think, what's this guy's name again? I've got to see more <laughs> stuff like this. Probably Wild at Heart. Definitely. And I guess uh, one of the things that could have gone through your mind seeing uh, both Wild at Heart and um, Honeymoon in Vegas at an early age, yeah, as like some of your first would have been, does this guy love Elvis? Because obviously, like, if, <laughs> if you look back at Wild at Heart, it's like Cage is definitely doing an Elvis impression throughout that. And then there's mm-hmm. this kind of almost like love for Elvis. Yeah, with the with the impersonators and him in the middle skydiving. Yeah. So. For sure. If you, if you watch Honeymoon in Vegas and, and Wild at Heart in close proximity, as I did, as... <laughs> Uh, a couple of your very, very first Cage movies, uh, you would not be left in any doubt whatsoever that this guy was a massive Elvis head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you knew before he, he got the ultimate trophy of marrying Elvis's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was almost it was almost descending into parody at that point, but it, it, it made it plenty key, uh, plenty obvious right up front with those with some of those choices. Perfect. Well, that sounds, yeah, that's a great, like, kind of triple entry point into Cage. But which is your favorite Nicolas Cage film? Uh, can I be really cheeky and name more than one? Yeah, of course, of course. I was, I was checking out my, uh, my ratings on a popular uh, movie logging site, <laughs> uh, which <laughs> other sites are available. Um, but I double checked and there were five, uh, sorry, four, four Nicolas Cage movies. I'd give them five stars to. Wow. So I'm, I'm very stingy with my stars as well. So you may feel that a great many more deserve five stars, but I've given five stars to four movies and they are adaptation, mm-hmm. wild at heart, moonstruck and red rock West. Oh, oh, let's talk about, Red Rock, Red Rock West, just because I feel like that film doesn't get enough attention. The, the, yeah, mm. especially the attention it deserves. It's a, uh, it's great, right? <laughs> it's amazing. John Dahl directed. Uh, initially went to TV in the US. I think possibly got a limited cinema release in the UK. I'm not sure, but it was. Uh, I think in the US it was a TV movie. Um, it was. John Dahl's noir movie that he made before The Last Seduction. I think The Last Seduction went on to be like better known and more famous. Uh, but Red Rock West is um, absolutely superb, neo-noir, or a, f- a film soleil, as some people have termed it, with the kind of noir antics in a sun-blasted desert environment. Um, it's, got, it's got Nicolas Cage, obviously. It's got Dennis Hopper. Uh, it's got Lara Flynn Boyle coming in off the uh, the, the Twin Peaks hype, also in the early 90s. Um, it's just, it's one of my absolute favourite noir films. I mean, drop the, the Neo, just taking it all as a noir, all, all as a whole. Uh, Red Rock West is certainly top 10, maybe top five mm-hmm. of, uh, of my noir film favourites of all time. I've- uh, I love it. I've been circling a uh, 
uh, Laserdisc release of that film on eBay for a while, just because mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't even have a player. I'm just like, it feels like something I'd want to own and maybe even buy a, a Laserdisc player just to watch because it's like it seems to be one of those ones that hasn't got like. It's very hard to pick up, like unless you get like a, a DVD copy, like, and even then, mm-hmm. it's it's very hard to kind of get your hands on a lot of the time, and it's it's a real shame. Yeah. It's it's one of my favorite like subgenres of noir, which is a man makes a choice, <laughs> which leads to a succession of choices, and before he knows what he's done. He's in a nightmare. Yeah. He's in an absolute nightmare. Uh, and it's just like watching him make those choices and thinking that they're probably bad choices <laughs> and then finding out alongside him that, oh boy, they were even worse choices than you realized. Um, it's That's one of my favorite noir setups or like, you know, story structures. And um, Red Rock West, yeah, is absolutely top draw example of of that kind of a story i'm so glad we could yeah shine a light on it it's 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 a it's a definite favorite on this podcast um highly recommended uh viewers track it down uh but legitimately if you can but that might be tricky that's (laughs) that's my advice and i'll i'll leave you with that thought (laughs) um and here's a new question i've put on the podcast just because um and yeah, just because I had my mind blown recently uh, by an email I received from Nicholas Cage's manager. But is it mm-hmm. NIC or NICK to you as Nick? Well, well, I have thoughts. Um, I used to be an NICK person. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that everyone else was NIC. So I switched to that. And I've gradually acclimatized to that and kind of been you know, like a pod person, I've been taken over by the NIC line <laughs> of thought. I, I, think, I think you have some thoughts on this, Eric. Well, it's only because, yeah, Nick Cage's manager, I emailed him saying, and I said in my email, like, I would love to interview Nick, NIC. And mm-hmm. my, the email was very short. It was kind of yeah. that, that classic manager or PR person email. Um, yeah. it's something he wouldn't be interested in at the moment and by yeah, the yeah. way it's nick n-i-c-k really? yeah like a very wow. very adamant about the fact it's n-i-c-k and it's kind of put me down this weird rabbit hole thinking like have we as like a kind of i don't know collective consciousness all suffered some kind of mandela effect where someone <laughs> in an article or I don't, I'm trying, yeah, it almost feels like a true crime, uh, I, yeah, like a true crime podcast. I should start to find out the origin of where the NIC, the NIC came We've from. Slipped. We've slipped through the multiverse from <laughs> the Nick with a, without a K universe to the Nick with a K universe. It, it's bizarre. Like, if that is the case, I do think his PR team have done a very bad job. Of, of 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 not squashing it when it first came out when people referred to him as NIC as opposed to NICK. Yeah, they they yeah, it's too late now. He's going to have to live with it. <laughs> well, perfect. So yeah, 
before we talk about Pig, yeah, I just wanted to play a trailer just in case people uh, need a little refresh. My truffle pig. Someone stole her. He's not somebody you want to make angry. You will be angry. Earthquake is coming up. Who has my pig? So, before we get into it and I ask you to provide a synopsis, I would just like to know, is there, what, what in your life if you lost it, would send you on a Robin Feld-style mission? Uh, I struggled with this slightly because I'm not a very combative person. <laughs> so for me to properly, like, head out on a, on a quest, uh, it, it would take quite, quite <laughs> something. I've, just, I've gone with my cats. I have two cats, uh, Truman and Cooper, uh, Twin Peaks fans. Um, <laughs> And I'm I'm currently like in the middle of moving house, so I've sold sold my apartment and I'm buying a house, but I'm renting in the interim, and my cats are spending a little time in a cattery. So I haven't seen my cats for two months now. Oh man! And that is yeah. After the first two weeks, I was really feeling it. Um, so I just want to grab my cats and give them a hug. Um, I'm. I, I just want them back. So um, I'm going to see my cats because I'm missing them. That's a, that's a perfect answer. So, yeah, now I'm going to ask you to provide us with a synopsis for this film, please. Excellent. Uh, so when a reclusive truffle hunter, Nicolas Cage, has his prized truffle pig, Brandy, stolen... He must leave his woodland hut and team up with his cocksure truffle buyer, Alex Wolf, to head deep into the culinary underground of Portland, Oregon, track down the pignappers, and retrieve his beloved sow. That is perfect. I love it. I love it. I couldn't. I couldn't have done it any, any better myself. Um, so, what were your initial thoughts when you saw this film? Well, I think like a lot of people, I'd seen the trailer mm -hmm. and everyone off the back of the trailer was just like, ooh, it's going to be like Taken. It's going to be like John Wick. So it was like, oh, Bacon, John Pig, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's the thought I had in mind. But all the, at the same time, you can see from the trailer, just from the shots and the cinematography, it had more of a kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say A24 look. That's a bit of a cliche. But, you know, that kind of uh, slightly more artistic. Um, Kelly Reichardt, maybe? You know, one of, one of those movies that shot um, in... In Woodland? If, uh, yeah. Not you know, that, that, kind of, that kind of thing where, where people are a little bit away from um, uh, civilization and they've got a kind of uh, back to the earth sort of like slow paces and looking at the landscape and that kind of thing, which is not, those aren't things that you really associate with, um, with John Wick or Taken. Yeah. So it, it seemed like an interesting marriage of that kind of a plot 
with that kind of with with that set of uh, visuals and that style of cinematography. Um, so I was I was intrigued by that, and you know that kind of um, shallow depth of focus as well, mm-hmm. where you're just picking out little like dust motes in the air, and like everything's kind of slightly out of focus, and you're looking at maybe someone's cheek, you know, whatever it may be. I am um, sound like I'm being facetious, but I, I promise you I'm not. Uh, that kind of thing combined with that revenge plot was very, uh, you know, as the saying goes, how do those two things tessellate? Yes. So yes. I was intrigued. Uh, so I sat down to watch it in that frame of mind. Like, what is the mixture of these two things going to come out as? Is it going to be oil and water? Or are they going to, um, you know, combine uh, in interesting ways to create um, something new and interesting? Uh, and very early on in the film, I was really interested in, in Nick Cage's acting choices because he was dialed back and internalized in a way I hadn't seen for quite a while from him. Like we were talking earlier about like, oh, Kabuki style and, you know, bursting onto the Terry Wogan set and doing high kicks <laughs> and that kind of thing. And, um, and it was not that at all. I mean, obviously adaptation or something like that, he's very, uh, very restrained. And there, there, there are some other films, Leaving Las Vegas or so on, where he, for a lot of it, he's kind of much more dialed back. But just recently, we'd seen him you know, going off the rails in Mandy yeah. would probably be like the last, like really uh, critically acclaimed or, or, or at least um, a buzzy movie before this one. Yes. From him. Um, and for a lot of that, I mean, a, a lot of the selling point of that was like, he goes nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like he's properly like standing there with a bottle of vodka screaming and so on. So he's, he's, he's done that kind of quietism before and that coiled tension before. Um, but it didn't feel like he'd done it for a while. So it was straight off the bat, I was like, oh, we're back to this kind of cage, which is not the cage that people think of straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then I was interested in the, uh, the, the pig napping, which is very chaotically shot. Really no idea what's going on. Yeah. Uh, again, strong choices, bold directorial choices for a, a debut feature. And um, and from there on in, something else which I hadn't really expected was the importance of Alex Wolf. Yes. yeah, like- Because he's, he's introduced very early on. He's clearly like a contrasting figure to Cage. So you're going to be like, okay, these two are going to butt heads or rub up against each other and so on. Uh, but very early on, it becomes clear it's going to be a buddy movie for want of a better word mm-hmm. um like two two guys in a car uh like learning from each other uh which is again a, a classic setup if you get it right a lot of 80s cop movies and all that kind of stuff uh just two guys who like chalk and cheese um chatting and sparring and getting <laughs> it under each other's skin a little bit uh all this stuff was like not what i had expected and it wasn't like it wasn't a guy on a mission, they pissed off the wrong guy kind of movie, because to an extent it is a guy on a mission because they pissed off the wrong guy movie. But there are all these elements 
that were not obvious from the synopsis and not obvious from the pre-marketing. And I loved it all. I mean, I was heavily invested in this film very early on and uh, it, it never let me go. It took me all the way through to the end, which yeah. I loved. Perfect. There's a couple of points that you mentioned that I'd yeah, like to pick up on. One of them is is that thing you kind of mentioned about the kind of uh, like I, I, I'm not one for that distribution houses like have their own style or anything but like, <laughs> I think when when I saw that it was like a, a studio well like a distributor like Neon releasing it like mm-hmm. I think when I first saw that trailer I was I had a sense of ease almost do you know what I mean because obviously like yeah, yeah. they do have a, a good a good barometer of not putting out shit basically do you know what I mean like, yeah. they kind of, <laughs> like so so and yeah we you mentioned like the cinematography by Pat Scola which is absolutely like beautiful considering like he's a guy who hasn't really got many like major credits uh, apart from like tv ads and a lot of music videos and stuff like that mm-hmm. and the way he's captured this oregonian setting of of the woods and stuff like that is absolutely like i don't know it yeah. feels like all departments in this film are beating on the same drum as like they kind mm-hmm. they get the they get what the film is which is really refreshing yeah. and i I know that Cage is a producer on this as oh yeah like uh, his his production company Saturn Films, uh, one of the like production houses on it. So it it feels like he knew, and it it shines through in his performance um, that he knew exactly what this character needed. And it's well, I I, I kind of want to dive into this a bit later, but I feel like it feels like it's the perfect time in his career for him to play a character like this because it feels like he needed the life experience of everything he's gone through like the financial troubles to get to this point basically do you yeah. know what I mean to, to to understand what what Robin Feld has been through and um yeah like there's there's definitely a, a vibe um particularly in a scene which I'm sure we'll come to a little later in the chat, a vibe that this is a guy who has had some trauma and he's gone away to process that trauma and he's come to some hard-won philosophical opinions about about life and about what you should do with your life that have enabled him to handle that trauma and he's just he's been sat in the woodland with the grasping onto these philosophical conclusions he's come to very tightly and then he just wants to hand them off mm-hmm. and they are very like those his thoughts on life and what makes a good life have become very important to him because they have they have been what has kept him together yeah so uh that is something that that is a kind of mindset i associate very much with an older guy who's gone through some stuff Mm-hmm. And I think it would not, it absolutely wouldn't work if you had a younger actor playing it or, or a younger Cage. Cage, had, if this role would come up earlier in Cage's career, uh, it, I just don't think it, it would have worked in the same way. You need someone who has 
who can convincingly give a sense that they have turned the corner in their life and they're like winding down and they are very much in the what have I learned from all this phase of their life, you know, coming through that autumnal, that autumnal stretch towards the end. I, I wanted to uh, play a clip. You mentioned um, Alex Wolf, like his introduction to this film. And I think it, it kind of, it perfectly tells us what their relationship is like to some degree. Beautiful. Woo. I know this little fucker does it. How do you do it? <laughs> you sure you don't want one of those um, camp showers? You know, the ones with the propane and the hot water? What about that phone? I don't want to be the one to drive up and find you, like, dead. You know, there's, like, animals and shit out here. Okay. Oh. Good talk, Rob. So what were your, like, <laughs> impressions of Alex Wolf before this film? Were you kind of excited about him, like, when, when you saw him crop up in things, or...? Well, I, I basically knew him primarily from uh, Hereditary. Mm -hmm. Like for, for me, if you said Alex Wolf, I would just be like, "Oh, the guy from Hereditary," and that would be like the first thing I would think of. And I would probably struggle to think of almost anything else he'd been in. Mm -hmm. um, now I know he's he's been in um, uh, Thoroughbreds, which I which I saw, and I really love Thoroughbreds. Uh, he's been in both the Jumanji movies, which I've only seen the first. Uh, oh, he's been in both the remakes. Yes, uh, yeah, 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 the new ones. Yeah, the new ones. And uh, I've only seen the first of those two, and I don't remember him from them. Uh, old, I saw in the cinema recently and didn't realise it was him, despite them all. Uh, <laughs> Bad Education, My Friend Dharma. Like, I've I've seen these movies, and with no disrespect intended, to uh, to Alex Wolf, I don't particularly remember him from them. Mm -hmm. Like I, some of those movies I liked, others not so much. But um, he he never really like stood out in a way that grabbed my attention and made me think, oh, there's Alex Wolf. Uh, it, it was just Hereditary, and obviously in Hereditary, like, everyone comes out of that movie thinking like, um. Well, first off, that was terrifying. But also, like, you know, who was that guy and who was that girl? And um, it's Alex Wolf. So if you said to me his name, I would just think of Hereditary. Yes. And then for all the other movies that, he'd, that I'd seen that he'd been in, probably I would struggle a little bit. Um, so for me, it was almost like, a, despite being in a lot of other good films, almost a, like a one-hit wonder at this point. Like it was like, what's he going to be in next? Is he ever going to have another role that's as grabby mm -hmm. uh, as um, as hereditary? Uh, and from really early on, I mean, he's opposite Nicolas Cage, who can be a very focused, grabbing performer. Mm -hmm. If I can put it that way, uh, he more than holds his own. Like he needs to bring a specific energy to the scenes he has with Nicolas Cage to match him. 
when you know Nicolas Cage is kind of retreating and doing that growl thing, but also like draw, drawing your attention in a in a less showy, less obvious way. And Alex Wolf has to play off that and and react and then like provoke him and so on. And you need to get the the back and forth right and the the have the energy going between them in a convincing way. Um, and he, he absolutely rose to the challenge. I thought he was great because the, the film is about, to a large extent, it's about the relationship between those two guys. Mm-hmm. And if you've got Nicolas Cage doing like a very, very grabby, focus, um, focus uh, grabbing performance uh, style, uh, you could end up with Alex Wolf floundering and he doesn't flounder. And that's partly because Nicolas Cage is actually secretly like a very talented, very giving actor. (laughs) It's not usually obvious, but he can be, and he is here. And partially it's because Alex Wolf is actually genuinely really freaking good. Um, And he he kind of proves it with this film for me. Yeah. Uh, Like he, hereditary, you're like, okay, this, uh, something's going on with this guy. And I, I think Pig was enough to steal the deal. Like, okay, Alex Wolf is genuinely a really talented actor. So um, I think they really work well together. Yeah. There's a moment that I absolutely love in this film, and it's when Alex Wolf is at the mirror kind of psyching himself up for the day and kind of like, like, you're the man, you're the man. And from speaking to the film's editor, Brett W. Buckman, he he let, let me in that that take that's used in the film is somewhat of a mistake because like you actually see Alex Wolf like resetting like it's kind of like <laughs> part of it's improvised but like it makes so much sense within the film because it is that thing if you've ever psyched yourself up you have that moment where you break out of it and then like mm-hmm. go back mm-hmm. into kind of geeing yourself up and I just yeah. and there's that again like there's that great speech. That, per- that perfectly works because he is trying to get in character yes because a lot of the point of the film is he is in character because he has a persona that he feels he needs to inhabit to be a capital S success. Uh, you know, to be a success, you need to be perceived as a success and fake it till you make it. And so it makes sense that he would be faking it in front of the mirror mm-hmm. and working on faking it until he can make it. Yeah. So the, that completely works as a, as a character beat, even if it was unintended. It's really interesting seeing his interactions as a character with anyone who isn't Rob, like the kind of pot wash <laughs> outside the back of the the restaurant where he's like, "Hey, my guy!" Like, re- like, <laughs> and then the way he behaves with the kind of chef he's dealing with, or like the guy in the butchers, like when he's selling him mm. the truffles and stuff like that, and like again, mm. like. It's almost like a bit more placid, like and it all feels like he's wearing these different masks on different people, and then yeah. it's it. You only really see it slip when he's spending time with Rob, or even more so when he's in the presence of his dad, uh, Darius, mm-hmm. played by Adam Arkin, which is like, yeah, it's it's a real like, I don't know, nuanced performance that Alex Wolf gives. Like he kind of re and. It, is a testament to Nick Cage that in the scenes they are together, like you, you, you drew upon, that he is a generous actor that he lets him have his time to shine, seeing as 
Cage can be, like you said, like pull a lot of the focus towards him. But like, and he does it throughout the film. And there's kind of like, there's a scene again, like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I have to play a clip of this because it is possible. Should we talk? Should we talk about the, the big scene? scene? The, the best scene, yeah. So the best uh, scene. Okay. <laughs> uh, you probably don't remember me, but I actually worked at Hestia. You were a prep cook for two months. Was it two months? I fired you because you always overcooked the pasta. <laughs> Ah, ah, now this is excellent. This is a, uh, a 2012 Pinot from just 20 miles away. So do you know about the pig? Why, why do you want a pig? It's my pig. Oh, okay. So the, the other voice we heard there, apart from Nick Cage and Alex Wolf, is David Nell, who... I would say probably gives the most cage-like performance in this film in the way that he's kind of the one who's drawing upon these, I don't know, we- like, not weird, but kind of, in, do you know what I mean? Like more more madcap yeah. deliveries to his his lines and his kind of uh, gestures he does and his outbursts, whether it's like the little nervous laugh he does or the way he kind of spits out when he says what his his signature dish would have been well he's yeah he's the one who who acts like he's he's done a line of coke just before they said action <laughs> basically and is and is and is trying to keep it in but it's jittery uh he's he's the one who's got that vibe for sure um so it's it's like you say it's the three of them around the table in david nell's character's restaurant um having this talk and it is one of the best scenes like it's it's it maybe even the best single scene that i've seen so far this year yeah really great um if you're for any uh, listeners who are wondering who david Nell is uh i've got his uh his filmography up before me now um we have such films as my blue heaven with steve martin and rick moranis turner and hooch with uh, Tom Hanks and Total Recall, the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger Paul Verhoeven movie, um, which which is again one of my favorites. I do love Total Recall. I confess, I I don't remember David Nell in Total Recall or indeed in Turner and Hooch. Oh, so, so David Nell in Total Recall um, is the he works for the company that he goes to, and he actually has a scene where. They're restraining Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, and he injects him with like a serum to knock him out. So I recently okay. interviewed David now and asked him, like, how does it feel to be one of the the rare people to have knocked out Arnie on screen? Like, <laughs> uh, that's that's quite a quite a claim to fame. Um, it was so obviously we all know Nicholas Cage's Alex Wolf, even though I'd seen him in about half a dozen films, only really knew him from Hereditary. Um, and then the third guy being David Nell, I confess, just didn't know the name, yep. didn't recognise the face, and it's the three of them round a the table. Uh, and it's about halfway through the film, so you're not expecting it to be any kind of, you know, centrepiece moment necessarily. He's, he's on the trail of his pig, he's got a few leads, it's brought him to 
this guy's restaurant. Turns out he knew him a bit from back in the day. And what unfolds is this three-way conversation where the, the tension and the status games and a little bit of fragile role-playing between them start to shift and come apart and reconfigure in like a really like mesmerizing way. And you can see that David Nell's character is, you know, trying to play the part of the restaurant guy, but he's starting to get uneasy. And then Nicolas Cage just locks eyes onto him and starts talking and it turns into this monologue that just has this internal rhythm to it that just builds and builds and builds. And it's like he seizes control <laughs> of David Nell's character and Alex Wolf's uh, to an extent as well, seizes control of their minds almost for a second and just draws them into his inner world through nothing but the power of this little monologue. And the, the you know the camera's getting... I assume the camera's getting tighter. I can't even remember because it had like a mesmerizing effect on me as well. <laughs> let's for the sake of argument, let's say the camera's getting tighter and tighter on Nicolas Cage and occasionally coming back to David Nell, who is like trembling and like blinking and like starting to starting to crack under the pressure of what Nicolas Cage is saying. Uh, and it just builds to this pitch, this quiet pitch of intensity, and then like Cage breaks the moment and like pulls back, and there's this like calm settles. And he's, you know, no spoilers for the film, but he's done what he needed to do. Oh, we can this we is, can spoil the film. Don't worry, we're going to spoil it. Oh, we can it. spoil the film. <laughs> he's he, 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 he basically he um he, he almost I don't want to say hypnotizes him. He he knows what the key is yeah. to unlock this guy. He gets to the heart of it, right? He gets to the heart exactly. of exactly. And I've got, I've got, I've got exactly what he says to him right here. Yeah, they're not real. You get that, right? None of it is real. The critics aren't real. The customers aren't real. Because this isn't real. You aren't. Okay. Derek, why do you care about these people? They don't care about you. None of them. They don't even know you. Because you haven't shown them. Every day you'll wake up and there'll be less of you. You live your life for them and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. What's beautiful about that speech as well, especially if you look at it almost in a, a meta context, is it feels like something that Nick Cage himself would almost deliver to like a younger actor <laughs> almost, or like somebody who's a peer of his, who has kind of spent a career of, chasing blockbuster movies after blockbuster movies and kind of as somebody who's kind of been on the side of falling in and out of au fait with uh popular audiences and stuff like that i guess like mm -hmm. cage feels like the perfect person to play that role because 
yeah, post what two thousand and nine, like Nick Cage to some degree has been seen by a lot of people, and it's it's always constantly flip flopping on Twitter. Like it seems to me, like every other week, there's this argument of like Nick Cage is the worst actor of all time. He's like, especially with the kind of thing of pig. There's people saying like, oh, I think it's something recently like. Oh, so is this the first, like, a tweet that went viral? Is is this the first good movie Nick Cage has made? Or there's all this kind of chatter about him. Yeah, the, the memification of Cage, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it feels, it feels beautiful that this speech, because you can, you can picture, you can, I, I'm not sure who he would be. I can't think off the top of my head, like, which actor he'd be saying that to, but like, it's almost like do actually do what you want to do as opposed to chasing these highfalutin and I don't know Tom Cruise I don't know yeah you like even like I'm trying to think who, who who one of his peers would be to say that to I don't know Shia LaBeouf maybe oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right and it takes like the whole of Nicolas Cage's career up to now to provide some of the weight behind that. I don't want to say all the weight, because even if you didn't really know Nicolas Cage at all, I think you can watch this film yeah. and be like, well, that was that was a great scene. But if you're familiar with Nicolas Cage, so much of the, the power of that comes from a sense that it's, it's, it's kind of they don't exist, you don't exist. It's um, almost... Uh, uh, a new, almost a new age sentiment, or, or maybe even uh, some might some might say uh, quasi Buddhist sentiment, um, the kind of thing that uh, kind, of, the kind of thing that David Lynch might say in a behind the scenes featurette. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, like you don't you don't exist. Don't worry about it. You know, the self doesn't exist. Um, it's that kind of thing, but it's it operates on two levels. One is that he means it in a really heartfelt, positive way. He wants this guy to understand this because it will be good for him to understand it. Yeah. And you don't really see David Nell's character again. So he may or may not have picked up that lesson and taken it on board. Um, You're not sure. But in that moment, you know Nicolas Cage wants to give him the option of listening to that and understanding it and um, uh, taking it on as a lesson. And, and it, it is meant positively. It's meant as a, as a, a gift given freely. Um, and you can, you can hear the kind of note of, there's a note of almost pleading, mm-hmm. like not, you know, not, not pleading with a capital P, but, you know, really genuinely wanting the guy to understand what you're saying uh, because that would be good for them. Um, The other note to it is the kind of more ominous note. It's like a threatening note. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, Which is because he wants his, despite all that, despite saying these things don't exist, uh, you know, another terms of Buddhism might be to let go of desire. He's he, he's not going that far because he wants his big. 
he definitely wants his pig back. And so there is a threatening note, which uh, on one hand is like, you know, let go of your illusions. Uh, so much of what you think of reality is not reality. There's like a core of light that you need to find your way back to. And that's, that's your reality. Let everything else go. That is meant positively. And on the other hand, there's also a sense of, I don't have time for your bullshit. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't have time for your, what are you doing? Fucking around <laughs> telling me, telling me about your shitty food, which is absolute horseshit. And I don't have time for it because I need my pig and we're all going to die soon. So quit your nonsense and <laughs> tell me what I need to know. Now, there's that note as well. And both things are true at the same time. So there's a kind of light and dark to it. Um, and that, that darker side works in part because you know of Nicolas Cage from a number of other films in which he has, for most of the runtime of the movie, beat the shit out of people. Yeah. And he brings that to this performance um, mostly through the audience just being aware of it. So he, he's got this kind of quiet, steely, reined-in aggression that tells you that. And that would be enough on its own. But on top of that, most of the people watching this movie would have seen several films previously where Nicolas Cage has like broken a guy's arm or, you know, just punched him unconscious or whatever. So he there is that always hovering over the proceedings like a kind of specter, a specter of action movies past um, <laughs> that, that really that really helps on that more threatening note. So I, you've got that light and dark working together. And even like within sentences in that speech, he moves from being like having the guy by the balls and giving him a squeeze, as it were, and also, but also like trying, trying to lead him to to back to the light. Uh, and having those two things work together is uh, it's just incredible to see. It's a, it's a masterful scene, masterful performance. And I, I think a lot of people are going to like do a version on, of it on their acting reels or something yes. like that in years to come. Uh, and I don't think anyone's going to do it quite as well as Nicolas Cage uh, managed to do it there. Wonderful. Well, I, I think to the point of like, he just wants his pig. If for him, <laughs> the pig is like a talisman of almost like the simple life or like that for him is his pub. Do you know what I mean? That is, uh, that is his idea of, regardless of the kind of loss he's felt and the grief he uh-huh. still feels, he's made a life for himself and like whether it's like the ideal life like it's it's, it seems like he's content at least kind of out in the woods with this pig so like i think it's that thing of i've i've found i found my pub Mm -hmm. like let me let me please get back to that place yeah so like and it's it's that thing of like you've almost taken away my nirvana as it were so you can just carry on living this facade and i think like that's what i think that's deep down in his speech and that's what's kind of drilling into the heart of uh chef finway and you mentioned the um uh, I, i think what drives the psychology of the character more than anything it's clear by the end is that he suffered a loss, a hugely traumatic loss in his personal life. And the kind of 
reaction to that, the coping mechanism or the, the whatever psychological process has swung into effect to be able to, to allow him to be able to handle that emotionally was for him to say, I've, I've lost something of immense importance to me, invent, well, immense importance to me. I could lose anything at any time. Everything's transitory. Uh, everything goes. I need to not be caught out again. I need to think hard about what I can do without, what I can lose, and just let that slip away and focus on what I need, like the very, very, very small number of things that I absolutely need to be happy, and then just focus on those and protect those. Don't get distracted from protecting them and just hang on to them. And then everything else can be, you know, um, washed away by the reins of time or whatever it may be. Um, And he's decided that one of those very, very small numbers uh, of things is his pig. Mm-hmm. So he's got his pig, he's got his shack, goes truffle hunting. That's it. And if you've got a very small number of things like that, you can properly protect them and not get distracted and not get caught out by um, by unexpected, deeply traumatic loss. And so it is that uh, when people come and just steal his pig, it's like, right, there's almost nothing in the world that I couldn't cope with uh with losing i've i've developed all these psychological uh you know defense mechanisms to let stuff go and say it doesn't matter say it doesn't like anything i could lose anything at all but i have to just like egg myself one or two things and say that's important and that's what they've stolen and that's why i will not let them stand and i that i think is what is what drives the uh what drives his character He's basically said, you can take anything from me except this. And then that's what they've taken. And it's even what it represents because as we, well, as, as yeah, as we find out from this clip mm. here. Uh, my pig to find truffles. What? The trees. The trees tell you where to look. And why the fuck do we do all this? <laughs> so that kind of like that lets you into the fact that it isn't even the the the, the pig. It's not even the it's not even the fact of the truffles that he cares about. It no. is just the pig and what that represents as well. I guess it's like it's another like kind of line you can draw between this and john wick is the fact yeah. that what is taking for them isn't actually it's not it's not the dog in john wick's case it's not the pig in robin feld's case it is the what that represents to them and in both cases it is the loss of a loved one and mm. It's be, and, and that is a thing that's like throughout this whole film is that sense of grief that we have through the three like lead or the three I'd say leads like Adam Arkin's probably got like set like I don't know like 10 minutes of screen time if that like but like mm-hmm. those central figures of the film 
it's it's almost it's about them coming to terms with their different like senses of loss and at the same time like almost like this shared sense of loss and it's it's only when they kind of all come to terms with it and there's there's that brilliant moment when um robin goes to darius's home and he says to him about like um yeah he's he's he he asks he he asks him like about the pig and stuff like that darius like um i know that's it robin feld says to him were you always like this or was it when you lost her and darius responds what about you like like Mm -hmm. and that is the thing is that it's 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 how it's interesting because they're they're different sides of the same coin of like how you process your 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 loss and your grief and obviously like robin has become philosophical and like very reclusive and stuff like that whereas darius has become angry at the world and he's taken it out on people he's taken it out on his own son he's taken it out on rob like when he when he delivers that speech near the end it's like it's, i don't know he he speaks with so much venom like he, yeah he says to him from the very first moment my son started selling for you you've been in my world this whole time all these years edgar finway those tweaked out fucks they're mine that's just how it is and you have nothing to bargain with. Now, I will have $25,000 delivered to that little campground of yours tomorrow. If I see you again, you do anything to fuck with me, I will chop that pig up into bacon. Now, I can buy another one. Now, get out of my house. So what do you make of Adam Arkin's performance in this film, as small as it is? Uh, I thought it was exactly what it needed to be. It was very good. It was, um, it, it mirrored Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. It was like the the anti, the inverse of Nicolas Cage's performance in, in, in some way. It was like the yin to his yang. So where he was where he had find a kind of found a kind of uh, hard one in a piece to an extent what we saw here was the opposite of that where there was just like this festering malevolence mm-hmm. born out of uh, born out of grief um and so it was uh <laughs> to be facetious for a second it w- it was like one of those marvel movies where the the hero ultimately has to fight the evil version of himself yeah yeah, yeah. like the, the the guy, the guy who has all the same basic powers, but is like wears the black hat to the other guy's white hat or whatever, and and that's what it was. It was like they both had, um, uh, they both had like the traumatic grief in their life, and Nicolas Cage zigged, and the other guy had zagged, um, and it was it was right, it was uh, thematically right that they should face off at the end, and. Uh, Good should win over evil. 
So obviously talking about Adam Arkin, what do you make of that kind of relationship that he has with uh, Amir in this film? Because I think that, like, yeah, that that is that is a really interesting counterpoint because you kind of see this almost father-son relationship building up between Rob and Amir throughout and then the kind of counterpoint yeah. with his dad. Uh, it's a, re- a really strong portrayal, I think, of a bullying, controlling parental figure mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to uh, the more loving although it might not initially seem that way, but the more loving relationship that Amir has with Rob, the relationship that he has with his dad is uh, coercive, uh, on, on, from the point of view of the father, a coercive, disrespectful, that uh, doesn't, doesn't respect his son's boundaries, doesn't respect his son's choices, just flat out doesn't respect his son full stop. Uh, has treats him superficially as a kind of neutral figure who, like anyone, must bend to his rules if they're going to operate in the uh, culinary scene of Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you get you get a sense that below that, and not very far below that, is a, a very particular need to uh, to to dominate his own child. Mm-hmm. For for reasons that are, I don't know, pro- probably je- jealousy related to grief that this guy has got his future ahead of him, uh, whereas he has effectively lost his lost his wife, or you know things uh, th- things in that regard have have not worked out entirely perfectly for him because. The, the love of his life has he, he has lost her effectively um, for whatever reason whatever process of of psychological psychological reaction to that trauma or coping mechanism or whatever he has come out the other side with a desire that he can't even admit to himself to belittle and dominate his own child Mm -hmm. as a response uh and he kind of i think to to himself as much as anyone he kind of covers that up with a kind of well you need like anyone who works in this area needs to do this and that and i'm just gonna need to work by the rules and uh i'm the big guy in town and i'm not going to treat him any differently and so on but it's it's not too far below the surface that he just wants to push his own son around um and it's uh, heartbreaking to watch, yeah, and really psychologically convincing, mm-hmm. uh, and almost it's the kind of thing that as you watch it, because because by the time you get to see uh, to see him, uh, Darius played by Adam Arkin, you've spent a long a long time with uh, Amir played by Axwolf, so you've come to get a sense of who he is and his strengths and weaknesses, and you're on side with this guy, and, you know, he's might have initially seemed a bit annoying, but you can see the kind of real, genuine, loving character underneath that, and you come to embrace that. So by the time the father comes along, and you see him, you're like, 
well, this explains a few things. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, like this, ex- and and I was watching it, and I was, I, I'm not sure if I was actually physically popping my knuckles, but I was metaphorically mm-hmm. like popping my knuckles, like you know, or grinding my teeth or something. I was like, oh man, this guy, like this, ooh, this uh, this chap needs to get his ass handed to, <laughs> and um, uh, at this point. At the same time, at this point, the movie had kind of uh, played its hand that Nicolas Cage wasn't going to be Liam Neeson. He wasn't going to be Keanu Reeves in this movie. He was going from person to person and looking them dead in the eye and telling them what was in their heart and breaking them psychologically rather than uh, in the nicest possible way, in the most positive possible way. Uh, rather than you know doing a bit of uh, gum foo or whatever, um, and so by the time Nicolas Cage gets to face off against this guy, you've you've been won over by that approach. So you don't want Nicolas Cage to pick up a an oak kebab skewer and run it through his head or whatever. Uh, you want him you want him to look at this guy and say something psychologically devastating, um, which which of, which of course. Uh, he does effectively. Yeah. So you're like, good. And uh, maybe this guy will react to whatever Nicolas Cage says or does in a emotionally healthy way, or maybe he won't. But either way, Nicolas Cage is going to set up some truth bombs and then walk away. And uh, and you're just, you're just urging urging that on, waiting for that to happen. And it's very satisfying when that's what goes down. I want to talk about that kind of third act of this film where it kind of becomes like we found out that Darius was the one who kind of had put the tweakers out to to get the mm-hmm. pig. And then Rob sends Amir off on this kind of like uh, quest almost, this kind of like mm-hmm. side quest to, to get these ingredients because Amir had told him about this meal that his parents had had and kind of really lets you into the fact that his parents would argue a lot and you get that sense you you get a sense in that scene in Amir's apartment apartment as well um you see the photo of Darius and Rob looks at it and the way the camera lingers on it it's almost like in that moment he knows he's got my he's the one who's got my fucking pig but like Mm. it's it's actually confronting him and having the conversation. And what I like about this one, you said, like it doesn't end in gun for uh, cut, yeah, gunfo or anything like that. Is the third act of this is like it's got more in common with Ratatouille than it does with John Wick <laughs> in the fact that hit like he takes he takes yeah he get he. he takes Amir under his wing and together yeah. they cook this meal that is going to unlock this kind of sensory memory inside mm-hmm. of Darius. And I think like, we, yeah, we haven't really talked about the, 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 the food in this. Like you, you yourself, are you, are you a kind of, are you a, would, I hate the term foodie, but like, are you somebody who's into food? No, not especially. Well, I mean, I like, <laughs> I like a good meal. Yeah. <laughs> That's like you know I've I've um, I spend a fair amount of cash on delivery. I can tell you that much. Uh, it's uh, no, but I'm not a foodie, so I'm not one of these people who, who looks up what the latest yeah 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 
top restaurant reviews are and sees what Jay Rayner's said and like trots off to check it out myself. <laughs> Nothing like that. So that that kind of stuff is alien to me somewhat. But uh, um, but the film does a very convincing job in in making you feel like you're at least somewhat privy to that world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the side quest stuff where he goes off to get the get the ingredients is interesting because uh, effectively he gets all the ingredients by name dropping. Yeah, <laughs> um, Rob's, Rob's name. So it's everyone's like, oh, I can't possibly give you this ingredient. I can't possibly give you this wine. He's just like, oh, Rob's on me, and they're like, oh, okay, here it is. <laughs> Every time. So the the, the issue becomes, uh, you know, what what is the lesson? And you might, I mean, it's a little bit ambiguous. You might think, oh, well, they feel sorry for Rob because of his personal tragedy uh, and do it for that reason, which, you know, possibly. Um, But I think more than that, it's just that they just respect him. Mm -hmm. Like they respect Rob and they don't respect Amir. So that's why when Amir, Amir can't get, the ingredients that Robson them out for, and they use name drops Rob, and, and they give it to him. The issue is, or the question is, why is it that they don't respect Amir, but they do respect Rob? And from what you've seen of their differing characters throughout the film, I think what you're invited to conclude is that Rob knows who he is, and he shows people who he is. Mm-hmm. And he, he says, this is who I am. I'm standing in front of you now. I want these things for that reason. I want you to give them to me. And people know exactly where they are with him. And they know that there's no pretense. There's no BS. Uh, And they respond very strongly to his purity and his truthfulness. Uh, And they see him as as someone where they, you just know where you stand with Rob. And and they respond very positively to that, and they will stand by him because they, they'll know he's a man of his word, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Whereas, I mean, it's the opposite. I mean, he's got his sports car and his flashy suit, and yeah. his, his patter, and everyone can see him coming a mile off and know that you know this guy is uh, the walking manifestation of uh, a bullshitter, <laughs> and. You know, and if they've got something they're willing to sell at a certain price, and he turns up and says he wants to buy it for that price, then sure they'll sell it to him. You know why not? But they're they're never going to do him any favors. Yeah, they're they're never going to have that connection to him and say I'll I'll, I'll do this for you on principle. Let the chips fall where they may. They'll never say that. Uh, so the lesson you're invited, I think, to take away is know yourself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want this to rhyme, but it's going to. And sh- and show yourself, know yourself, and show yourself. Like the, it, like you need to know who you are, and then you need to let other people know who you are, yeah. uh, with all pretense stripped away. Which is a, like a courageous thing to do. And if you do that, people will respond to it, and you will be at least somewhat respected, and people will have your back when you need them to. I think. Uh, that is one of the key lessons of the film. Definitely. Um, what, like, one of the things I wanted to double back on to what you said is how Darius would react to this kind of unlocking this sensory memory or the kind of like mm-hmm. 
Rob coming at him with the home truths and um, here is that reaction he gives. Get out! Get out of my house! Get out! I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever saw. Why are you doing this? <sighs> I'm sorry, but, uh... By the time I got it, just waste of space, junkies, yeah. They're too rough. We, uh, couldn't. She died. I, I think this moment in the film like and and that clip really really does a thing of helping me to kind of get onto a point i really wanted to talk about and it is the music to this film and sometimes more importantly i think the silence that this film is happy mm-hmm. to dwell in which i think is like is a really especially for a first time director is a very bold yeah. move like what it what do you make of both the score and the kind of yeah that that choice to wallow almost in the the quiet moments of this story? Um, first of all, the the score, such as it is, is great. Mm-hmm. Um, very very affecting. I, according to the um, the crew notes I've got here, Alexis Grapsas and Philip Klein are yes. both. Uh, uh, credited as composers. I don't know if they worked together or if they contributed different sections of the score, uh, but the, the score as it has is perfect. It's not overpowering, but it is. it hits all the right notes. It doesn't hit you over the head with how you're supposed to feel. It just exists in the, the, the uh, tapestry of the, of the film and contributes that kind of like emotional um, grace note behind mm-hmm. behind the performances. Uh, but like you say, for a lot of it, that kind of dissipates and disappears and you're left with these long silences. Uh, and there's a kind of, in a movie that to a certain extent is about letting go, letting go of uh, the things that you don't need, letting go of illusions, uh, letting go of uh, things that might hurt you to hold on to them too hard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, letting go of your ego, like annihilation of the ego um, or, or of the, the the most part of your ego. Those silences add to that kind of uh, annihilating quality because you can hear people at certain points, especially people who are trying to uh, – out argue 
uh, Rob, um, you can hear them kind of struggling to articulate counter arguments or attempting to talk about stuff and then wilting in his glare. And they are uh, flapping about in the open spaces of the, of the landscape they're often in or the kind of cavernous uh, restaurant halls or whatever it may be. And they're flapping about in the silences that the film provides for them. So you're just left with people opening and closing their mouths and uh, umming and erring and repeating little phrases and babbling on. And that kind of annihilating silence which comes in as they start to run out of things to say uh, is a, a very important sonic presence in the film. Uh, that kind of negative, negative space mm-hmm. on, the, uh, on the auditory side. Um, it's it is a bold choice. It's not the obvious choice, uh, and like you say, from a first-time feature director, it would have been very easy for a film which has these kind of strong. Uh, it is ultimately a very emotional film. It would have been very easy to slap on a soundtrack which says, which beats you over the head with, "Now this guy is having an emotional breakthrough. Now this guy is sobbing with grief. Now this guy is." reckoning with his hard-won hope for the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a Steven Spielberg approach. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you know, thump those emotional buttons. Um, and he chooses not to do that. He just lets you do the work as the audience. And that's uh, that's really good to see. I, I think, like, films, it, or, or like a director it almost reminds me of is... Uh, Derek C in France, like it's almost like Place Beyond the Pines, and I think like that's both mm. aesthetically and the kind of like I don't know it all. It almost feels like if 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 someone had said to me like this is the new Derek C in France film, I would have gone yeah that 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 rings true. This kind of very much feels like the uh, subject matter that he would tackle. Like as I mentioned, Place Beyond the Pines, a, a thing of like kind of. Uh, generational sins of the father type thing and we kind of get a bit of that and the the overcoming of of grief and stuff like that like and and again i think it is that thing of like a a midwest kind of i don't know setting that that that, that they both share i think like yeah well the, the speaking of yeah the pacific northwest um i was talking earlier about the f- films that had that kind of uh Oregon setting, um, and you could you could talk about things like I don't know Twin Peaks or so, which are all set up in the in, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but the one I was particularly thinking of, which I didn't actually name at the time because the name escaped me, is uh, "Leave No Trace" by Deborah Granick uh-huh. from uh, 2018, which was I think her second, not her second, maybe her third feature. Um, certainly people at the time were saying, why doesn't Deborah Brannick have more, mm-hmm. have more features <laughs> because she's so good. Uh, she, um, she shot Winter's Bone oh, with, um, you know, with Jennifer Lawrence's amazing breakthrough performance and so on. That was in 2010. Uh, what else? Let's have a look. Um, since then, she, in 2014, Stray Dog, which I don't think many people saw. And then 2018, Leave No Trace, which had um, 
uh, Thomasine McKenzie and Ben Foster as a, a daughter and father, uh, a pair of survivalists. So he's responding to grief in that movie by moving his himself and his daughter into the forests of Oregon <laughs> to, live, to live as survivalists. And in the meantime, you know, the authorities are a little bit like, uh, this guy should be in school. So they're sort of trying to track him down and they're trying to stay completely off the radar. So he's trying to keep himself and her off the radar as, as survivalists living off the land. Um, and, you know, with, you know, there are limits to how long you can do that, not to give away the film to anyone who hasn't seen it, but he's certainly attempting to do that just give a whack down and uh, teach her survival skills and so on, and just live the two of them together uh, in the forests. So there's, you know, a lot of thematic yeah. similarities. And the um, some of the shots, lingering shots of the wilderness as a place you can get lost in. And that kind of sense of losing yourself and, and letting go of ego and self-annihilation and just escaping forever into the forest, escaping grief and by um, just merging away into the forest and slipping away. Uh, was very strong in that film. So I, I wonder if that was in part an influence. Yeah. The fact they're both shot in the Pacific Northwest, they're both shot uh, in Oregon. Um, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure Luke Matrice is Oregon. Let me double check. Yeah, they live in a... They, they, they've gone survivalist in a nature reserve near Portland, Oregon. So mm-hmm. I can well believe that they were shot in the same forest. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, I, I think it's probably an influence. Um, it's... It's a very good film. So if anyone here is listening to this, has seen Pig and like Pig uh, and is looking for something similar yep. in ways other than being a revenge movie, uh, then I recommend Leave No Trace. Uh, very, very affecting film. Perfect. Well, th- there's a couple more points I just wanted to kind of touch on before we wrap this up. And um, one of them is the kind of, the location of portland and how like kind of entrenched it feels to the story itself it it almost feels like it couldn't be set anywhere else and the way that i mentioned pat scola before his cinematography captures that but i think like one of the most interesting things about the way he captures not just the kind of oregon wilderness but portland itself as a city is the film has this glow of almost like a a magic realism, like a mysticism. It feels one step removed from reality almost. Do you know what I mean? It isn't it isn't into the yeah. kind of off the pages comic book world in which John Wick lives in, where there's this CD like this, yeah, complete like world that none of us know about, but still mm-hmm. still has this kind of I don't know, it's almost like you can see a haze that the film has. And what do you kind of, and I guess a scene that really points it out is the kind of, and one that would be remiss not to mention is that that fight club scene we get that, that, yeah. that <laughs> Robin goes to to kind of prove himself that he is, he is somebody that um, should be talked about or, listen to i almost feel like that that scene is a kind of um a bluff from the director people who aren't sure what kind of movie it's yeah. going to be they're like let's um 
let's uh, have a kind of underground fight club where chefs beat each other up and like Nicolas Cage is going to like rise to the top or something. Uh, and then it just, it, it's almost like a, a gag scene. Um, no plays it straight. It, they just, Nicolas Cage just lets himself get punched out uh, and doesn't, doesn't hit back. And uh, that base by the end of that scene, the film basically told you, hey, you thought this might be that kind of film? It's not. Yeah. Uh, but there is something a little bit fantastical about that. That that scene, just a very notion that there is an underground fight club uh, for, sh- for chefs and culinary workers, um, is the the silliest thing in the movie. Um, <laughs> and it's it, it's kind of playful that it dangles it out there. Uh, is it? It, it kind of comes close in in what is a relatively early scene in that scene to almost derail almost derailing things because that is teetering on the edge of self parody and but then it just pulls it back and gets away with it I think so um, yeah that was that was an interesting choice but I, I think the really the primary purpose of that scene is just to emphasize what the rest of the film isn't. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, 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 it's it's a middle finger, right, to the kind of you, you were expecting this. You ain't you ain't getting it, yeah. guys. Like you, we're doing something else. But yeah, I think as much as like Portland them, dangerous, <laughs> thematically that scene kind of um, goes into this realism. I think the whole the, the the magic realism. I think the whole film does by Pat Scola's cinematography right do, do you want should, should we dive into that like a tiny bit sure. more before I, wrap this I also i also want to quickly say that that is very close to that scene that you get the the movie's funniest line oh uh yeah i've got that right <laughs> here ladies and gentlemen we're we gonna play that okay amazing there we go fuck you man you're some fucking homeless asshole who probably fucks his pig so sick of your shit do you know what you're worth to me without that pig? Nothing. Fucking zero. You're gonna have a fucking stroke in that cabin, and I'm gonna be the only one who fucking notices. So how about try and give me some fucking respect? I don't fuck my pig. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, you know, that's that's not the point of the film. The, the film does great things, like emotionally meaningful things and so on. But I, I feel like a lot of people are going to walk away from the film being like, that's the movie where Nick Cage says, oh, fuck my pig. Yes. <laughs> and, and and frankly, fair enough. If that, if that was the best thing in the film, that would still be a pretty, pretty and, good line. But the thing is, it gets away with it because Cage plays like the, the character with such earnestness and like almost mm-hmm. like a, I don't know, like a, a naivety to some, to some degree of like that I'm past I, he's almost like I'm past the those, like any perversion or any kind of like mm-hmm. things of lust at all. It's like it is pure love and connection for me now, and it's like if yeah, he's not phased by it. Yeah, <laughs> and he answers it bluntly because he has achieved that kind of inner self knowledge, where if someone repeatedly asks him if he fucks his own pig, he will just. Like he he won't weird out about it. He'll just look him in the eye and say, "No, I don't fuck my pig." And it will make you feel dumb. <laughs> it will make you feel dumb for like his, yeah, his reaction exactly. to it. Be like, 
oh well, well yeah she shouldn't have, shouldn't have brought that up <laughs> <laughs> stupid question now i think about it um I, I do think that line now sits alongside such great lines as uh I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Yes, it's going to be. It's going to be. It's it's going to be a, a kind of a meme. A meme for for all time. I reckon. I I do think it's a very memeable. Line. And, you know, <laughs> some 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 Nicolas Cage movies teacher on the edge of being almost nothing but a meme. Uh, a series in, of gifts in, in quite a fun way. Yeah, but uh, this this movie not so much. But it. It it does uh, it does us the honour of giving us that one, uh, throwing us that one bone, as it were. <laughs> Perfect. Well, is there anything before? Yeah, before we kind of get to final thoughts on this film, is there anything you feel like we've missed or you wanted to talk about with yeah. this film? I'm, I'm I I think we've I think we've covered it all. Uh, I think this is a great film. Um, this is one of Nicolas Cage's best films is mm-hmm. I, I would say this is like a top 10 cage film of all time i would i would put it in nicholas cage's top 10 i would go so far as to say of the 21st century it's maybe my second favorite nicholas cage film nice, nice. Of, the, of the 21st century so, uh, i put it above such films as mandy mm-hmm. uh bad lieutenant port of cool new orleans uh Lord of War, uh, what else? Just um, most all of it, really. Uh, the, the the one twenty first century Nicolas Cage movie that I still put, like just just much about this is probably adaptation, but I do love adaptation. You get you get two cages for the price of one. It's hard to argue with that. <laughs> like, Double the cage. Yes, um, it's interesting that like I think Mandy has come up a few times in our conversation, and I just kind of wanted to. To finger this point because I find it interesting that the these two films almost work in tandem with each other and do like in the way that Robin and Darius are kind of the yin and yang of each other. Mm-hmm. So is like Mandy and Pig in that they both explore the like very similar territory and kind of the theme of loss and grief and stuff like that, but do them in totally different ways and it's like it's almost like um two different shades of the same color paint almost like mandy in in both films in both films he loses the thing in the title of the film yeah (laughs) so he like he in both films he goes on a quest after losing the name of the film yeah (laughs) and basically and, and both kind of teeter around that um mid midpoints like they have both have that central scene that kind of changed this changes the trajectory of the movie from then on out it's like the kind of bathroom scene the restaurant scene like and it, yeah. i think it's a bold move for an actor to kind of i don't almost be within the same like i don't know like do you know what i mean like the, to, to to explore yeah. that explore those same kind of things so close together and i mentioned Um, yeah i mentioned to the editor of this film that because he edited mandy color out of space and pig that he has somewhat um edited a trilogy of nick cage loses his mind in the woods 
which is like uh, I yeah like a per a, a perfect little kind of triple feature if you if you want to do it especially for like a latter day cage fan um so yeah sure. so let's let's get on to scoring this and uh the scoring's pretty dumb on this podcast there's questions i've had for a long time so does Nicolas Cage have bad hair in this film? No. <laughs> uh, he's, he's dyeing his hair. It's, uh, you know, it's a, or it's a hair piece or whatever. Uh, but it's, it it's look, a good one. It I looks, mean, he's, it looks real. It, like, cause a lot of like the onset or like kind of offset photos of around the time, like kind of, I, I, I don't know. I think he's naturally gray. Like, yeah, but if if you you know uh, we've all seen movies where Nick Cage has bad hair. Yeah. The quintessential Nick Cage bad hair movie is probably Ghost Rider. Yeah, or or next the kind of one that the 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 falcon on his head. Uh, yeah, not good. In this one, it's you know it's it's proper. I don't shower. I don't shampoo. <laughs> it it is what it is. Hair, but it you know it looks. It, it suits the character. I mean, it looks fine. It looks a lot better than um, like one of those wigs that is trying to make him look 15 years younger than he is. Mm-hmm. So I, I say thumbs up. Thumbs up to his pig hair. Perfect. And um, one of the things Cage is synonymous with throughout his career, whether it's Vampire's Kiss, Peggy Sue got married, like is a crazy voice. Does he pull anything out of the bag like that in this film? No. Yeah. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't do a Nicolas Cage crazy voice. Mm-hmm. There's something about the we we talked earlier about that scene in the restaurant and how there was uh, a, a a loving edge to it, but also an ominous, threatening edge to it. And the closest you could say, I think, is that the ominous edge to that. Mm-hmm. As a kind of slightly unhinged quality. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. For, for, for all the positioning of Nicolas Cage as the man who suffered grief and went into the woods and found himself and has unlocked the secret to, um, to life and is like coming back to tell people what it is on the way to finding his pig. Uh, it, it's not that he's beatific and entirely at peace he is struggling to hold on to that piece and you can hear that struggle in his voice which is just like you you can hear the kind of creak and strain of his own reformed consciousness Mm -hmm. uh that's that's threatening to maybe give way and could potentially give way so you can you can hear that in the undertone of his voice that is probably the closest he comes to you know, being crazy. I mean, he has a bit of a shout and a bit of a cry at other points, but they are, you know, within the normal range of human expression, well, that, that, as opposed to certain other Cage movies where he dials it up to 11. Well, that leads me perfectly onto my final question uh, for this section, which is, does Cage freak out? Obviously, a lot of people, that's what they want from Nick Cage, but does he do it here? Um, no. He, no, not, not a Cage freak out. He kicks a sports car pretty hard. And I think the closest we get to anything is when he like commandeers that bike. Uh, another mm. trope of um, Nick Cage in films. Uh, this this follows the ranks of uh, friend friend of the podcast and I know friend of yours, Brad Hansen's favourite Nick Cage film, The Wicker Man, <laughs> which also has a, a perfect um, 
uh, bike stealing scene, but we get Cage in this. He kind of just growls at someone, doesn't he? He's like, ah! Like, ah. That, that's the way he gets his gets the bike off them. So, yeah. It's, it's uh, that's, true. That's the closest we get. And to, not to, this has reminded me something, not to deviate from Pig too much, but just for a moment, I know that you're looking forward to seeing, uh, I'm in the very fortunate position of having seen Prisoners of the Ghostland. And you are looking forward to seeing it? Is that, is that I, right? I, I am, yeah. Just because I get to see it in the cinema. It's kind of like the first um, live action Nick Cage film in a long time that I'll be seeing in the cinema. Well, if, if you're a fan of the uh, commandeering a bike trope, then <laughs> I would say uh, <laughs> just, uh, yeah, hold on for Prisoners of, of the Ghostland because you uh, you will be you will be satisfied that I, uh, it, I, I can confirm it does feature that trip. Perfect, perfect. Well, um, it's, a, it's a strong entry in the bike uh, stealing <laughs> panel. <laughs> Amazing. Well, based on this film alone, Andrew, is Nicolas Cage the greatest actor of all time? Without doubt. And I would also say Alex Wolfe uh, is also superb. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Well, um, Thank you so much for coming and getting caged in with me. Where can people find you if they want to yeah, find you online or anything? Or if they disagree with you or if they feel like they, we, we've missed anything in this podcast, where can they hound you online? If people want to track me down <laughs> and engage in a flame war, they are more than welcome to do so. I can be found um, on my blog which is co-run by uh, me and my good friend Genesis Whitlock, and it is called whitlockandpope.com. And you can also find me tweeting under that uh, handle, Whitlock and Pope, on Twitter. Um, and I'm also on Letterboxd, so come check me out. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much, man, for coming and joining me for this conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you once again to everyone for listening and a massive thank you to Andrew Pope for joining me. This somewhat feels like a triumph for this whole pig cast season I've been doing, delving deep into this film, but it's not quite over yet. I will be talking to Alexis Grapsas and Philip Klein about the music of Pig. You can hear their track hunting right now underneath me and I'm sure if you've seen the film you'll agree it is a beautiful beautiful score and yeah if you haven't already please do go back into the archives and check out some of the fantastic Pigcast episodes I've done whether that's with the co-writer and producer Vanessa Block editor Brett W Buckman actor David Nell who has that superb scene opposite Cage and Wolf or the consultant, the man that showed Nick how to look like a chef, Chris Zarnecki. So make sure you check out all of that, as well as what's coming up next week on the podcast, which is my chat with Will Chichester, all about the 1979 ecological horror, the pro no, prophecy. I nearly said the prophecy. We get into that on that episode. 
As I mentioned at the start, and if you follow me on social media, which is all at Gaged In Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, you would have seen that I was asking people for their opinions on this film. So I'm going to read out a few of those before finishing off on a couple of audio clips I've got from some fantastic people who have sent those in. So first up, we have Ben Winkley, who is at Ben underscore Winkley on Twitter, who said, the I'd like to speak to the chef scene is fantastic. So much going on, and so little said. David Nell's rictus grin. I couldn't agree more. Uh, again, if you haven't listened to my conversation with David Nell, it's fantastic. He he really does make a case to steal that scene, and it's it's beautiful to behold. And it really shows how generous Cage is as an actor to let uh co-star or just a bit part player but have so much time to shine on screen for the little time that david know is there the next one we have is from the effing nerds podcast which is at effing underscore nerds on twitter and they wrote one of the best films of the year a slow burn drama about isolation and loss nicholas cage reminds everyone how great an actor he truly is and a quiet and reserved performance, along with Alex Wolfe, who continues to be one of the best actors of his generation. I'm going to throw this out there. I think, I know who I've like, uh, I don't know, questioned this in the past, but could Alex Wolfe be the new Nicolas Cage? I guess only time will tell uh, with financial troubles and the roles he goes for, but it's exciting, especially seeing how excited Alex Wolf was co-starring with Nick Cage and how much he seems to have learnt from him. So it'll be interesting to see the films that are coming out in the next couple of years that Alex Wolf is in and how Cage has like rubbed off on him, how that kind of experience um, informs him going on. So the next person we have is James Rodriguez who is a previous guest on this podcast who would have been on the jiu-jitsu spoiler free episode and he is at rodders j04 on twitter and he wrote any fears nicholas cage would be hammy are dispelled as he goes the whole hog <laughs> for his performance in a powerful film which never left me bored spelt b-o-r-e-d i get it any swine still doubting his acting talent need to let go of that utter hogwash for seeing this will make them squill its praise. A fantastic pun-filled review. And I couldn't agree with you more, James. It's kind of one to leave the naysayers very much being sayers. I guess that's the opposite. Yay sayers? Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully the Nikonasance is, is a coming. Um, and then we have the Kids What Are We Watching podcast. Um, I know that. Um, I don't think the kids watch it. I think the dad watched it. <laughs> so that is at Kids Watching on Twitter. And uh, he wrote, It's a very interesting story wrapped in a well-made film with great performances. Like the cooking in the movie, everything is beautifully executed. It's great to see a calm and sedate cage shine here. 
as his character is revealed. Love it. Two exclamation uh, one exclamation mark. Sorry, added an exclamation mark there, but that's how much <laughs> I enjoyed the film. Um, I uh, yeah, again, I, I I can't I can't I can't agree with you more. I think like the food in this, it gets it really well. Like it it really does. I think I know it's been thrown about, but like like how Chef really managed to capture the beauty of food and that feeling of sharing food and yeah it's uh fantastic and i've got to say as somebody who couldn't eat any of this food uh due to not eating meat like it still looked massively appealing and it's kind of the messaging that this film has with the food and that kind of sensory memories and the way that we kind of i don't know make make some of our biggest connections over food i know that at any time i've kind of like been in a relationship or anything like that is there's something beautiful about sharing food together whether that's something you've cooked separately or together or even going out for a meal there is this kind of almost religious like experience that is fantastic and and heartwarming and really sensual about food it's yeah and i think this film taps really into that vein now onto the audio uh clips that people sent in of their thoughts and first up we have daryl edge of the cage rage podcast so a fellow acolyte to the world of nick cage so let's have a listen to what daryl had to say you know what can i say about pig that hasn't been said already just a beautiful um touching uh excellently shot fantastically acted film nicholas cage and alexander wolf on absolute point throughout the supporting cast tremendous keep your eyes and ears on michael sanoski as well um really touching just just wonderful i again <laughs> i i echo everything that daryl said thank you so much daryl for for sending that in it's it's great to kind of hear all these um pop, like opinions coming out about it there's been so much like kind of looking through letterbox and seeing a wash of like four five star reviews and like loggings and seeing all the papers kind of giving this the high praise that it's getting really 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 is something to behold especially as like a long suffering nick cage I, I, I not even suffering but like somebody who's kind of like been on the other end of people kind of saying like why are you a nick cage fan like the guy and like yeah the guy's just done shit all the films he does like he kind of phones it in he's a paycheck actor and stuff like that which we all know isn't true and i i love to see kind of people catching up i feel vindicated guys and i'm i'm, I'm pleased uh to kind of close us out with this one, I thought I'd leave you with the words of Matt Brothers, aka the busiest man in podcasting, who you can hear on the Spotlight podcast, Is Paul Dano Okay? And the fantastic Sudden Double Deep, who I'll, I'll announce now will be joining me for a Coppola Connections episode coming in the very near future a conversation that we're going to have again because I lost the audio for the first time. So anyone who uh, follows me on Twitter 
will kind of be aware of that mishap. But yeah, listen to Matt's words on Pig. Hello, Petros. This is Matt from Is for Dano, OK, Spotlight, and Sun Double Deep. Straight out of Pig, here are my initial thoughts. I, I, I bloody loved it. I thought it was a really uh, surprising film. Um, I know people thought with Nicolas Cage's name attached, it could have been a John Wick with a pig, John Pig. Um, and I'm really glad it, it, it wasn't. It was something much more than that. I mean, it was gorgeously shot. Every frame was, you know, very much a painting. Um, and just kind of what it said about, about loss and grief and all the other big themes that a lot of people have talked about. I just thought it did so much with so small moments. There were, you know, a handful of scenes I would pick out as being so on the money on all these big ideas and also uh, this particular Cage performance I think was really quite stunning. I think it might be top five, top five Cage for me in terms of him. I think he's, he's given us so much here. You know, it, it made me laugh, it made me cry and it made me very hungry. <laughs> I absolutely uh, love that. And yeah, I, I'm actually going to be sat in the exact same room as Matt this coming Saturday, so the 28th of August, as you are listening to this, to watch another new Nick Cage film, Prisoners of the Ghostland. And I cannot wait. Um, if you're going to Fright Fest and are seeing Prisoners of the Ghostland and you hear this in time, please be sure to come and find me. I'll be hanging out outside as soon as the film has ended with my portable recorder, getting your first opinions on that film. So if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast or any of them, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support in a bit more of a financial way, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash caged in pod, where this week there's a fantastic chat that me and Andrew had all about some of the worst Nick Cage films, the objective best nick cage performance and which living or dead director would andrew like to see cage work with which kind of brought this beautiful kind of full circle back to the coppola family connection that made it i don't know it's made it one of my kind of favorite little chats like that and i kind of it felt yeah when it ends it it feels like the perfect place to end that conversation because it it feels like uh the snake is very much eating its own tail and we 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 look to see if 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 there was a chance that Cage could have met this director but never worked with them. So as always, I've been your host, Petros Patsilvis. I've been caged in, and I'll catch you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.